Welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm John Harney. Our guests for this episode are both assistant professors at the University of Kentucky. Dr. Andrew Bird researches the historical study of Indo-European languages and the language from which they derive, Proto-Indo-European. He is author of the Indo-European Syllable, published by Brill. Dr. Brenner Reinhardt Bird is a specialist in German language and linguistic studies and has written on resistance vernaculars in Turkish-German hip-hop in contribution to the Cambridge Companion to Hip-Hop. Both of our guests are experts in linguistics, and we were excited to have them come and talk to us both about the history of linguistics and how that study influenced their own work on Far Cry Primal. Andrew and Brenna worked closely with the writers and actors in the production of the game, so as to utilise two languages they themselves created to further deepen the game's immersion. I was excited about Far Cry Primal from its announcement onwards, and we had intended to do an episode of History Respond as close to launch as we could. In the end, I was really thrilled that I was able to talk to Andrew and Brenna. Our conversation brought us to an entirely different field of historical study, and their enthusiasm for the project really came through in our conversation. You can find Andrew and Brenna at their Twitter account, at Speaking Primal, and their related blog, speakingprimal.blogspot.com. Margaka. Mu Andrew. Mu Brina. Dwadangwa far karai paraimali to teach us. Welcome, Andrew and Brenna. Thanks very much for that. <laughs> Thanks for having us. That basically was, uh, we're Andrew and Brenna, and we were, we created two languages for Far Cry Primal. Yeah, and we're really thrilled to have you on History Respond, and this gives us a chance to talk about it. So I kind of have these ideas written down for myself for us to talk about. I guess before we get into Proto-Indo-European itself, which I'd really love to hear more about, hmm. you know, we all, as video game fans, we all like read interviews of video game developers and everything. And I feel like obviously every person, every developer has a different um, experience in the game making process. And you guys obviously were part of the development team in a pretty, pretty, um, what sort I'm looking for here, pretty yeah. integral way, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So how do you guys, how is it affected, even though you're talking about individual characters and stuff, because you're, you're obviously have a very close relationship with the script, right? Like, yeah. very close. Yeah. So, I mean, what's that been like? Because I think a lot of the time we talk to developers, talk to writers, even talk to coders, for example, and graphic designers and stuff. What is it like for an academic to be invited into that and to be a part of that process? That's really interesting. Yeah, no, me. I mean, it was really fascinating. I mean, and honestly, it was really interesting. We would get into conversations in the break rooms about just, you know, what does it mean to to what what is the what is the deeper meaning of this scene and what mm-hmm. exactly is going on here um with Aisha who's who plays Jaima you know we really got into some some conversations about her as her expertise and her worldview and the worldview of the Ouija and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. but um but to get back like what is it like I mean you know this is one of the things we were there on set throughout the entire filming because they mm-hmm. needed somebody to make sure that they were saying it right you know and so we saw everything. We were there when a scene would change. We would run with the directors and the creative team and the writers and the actors. We would come up with stuff. And so we had our little, we had our fingers in so much of it, mm-hmm. right? And there's one scene in particular. And I mean, maybe that's why I, lo- I for me, the, the opening scene is so important because I just remember, I remember doing the scene and it was, it was a hard day. It was hard couple days. We actually, um, the cliff at the beginning, you know, when they're going up to look at the mammoths and Dalso, your, your buddy who dies, mm-hmm. right? He's like, you know, looking, Hey, go this way, you go this way. That cliff was, um, plywood 
held up with some some like, on, like metal scaffolding. bars on scaffolding. Hmm. And we had they had to rebuild it. Like they shot the entire day and it just didn't it wasn't working. And so they had to redo it and the director footage is like, I'm really sorry. Oh, and he was like getting and everybody was emotional about it. Like we this whole huh. day and we had this um great Shakespearean actor, Ethan from Stratford, and he had come in specifically because he's the, the also character and he'd come in and he's the one that you hear Suan Brashtan. That entire scene, there's one part where uh, one of the motion actors, uh, not motion actors, motion um, specialists, uh, the coaches, motion coaches, uh, Roberto, he played the role of the mammoth. Mm-hmm. So the actors were lying on the ground mm-hmm. in this open studio. And it's it's an interesting kind of thing because it's not because everything's CGI other than the people. And so then Roberto is, he's got his hands up above his head. He's holding them. He's trying to make himself as big as possible and stomping as if he's a mammoth yeah. in time. And then, and then they're like, they're, they're looking up really slowly. And it's just this, they're imagining him as the mammoth. And mm-hmm. we all started to see him as the mammoth there in the studio. We're all imagining Roberto. Like we got all serious and we're watching him like he's the mammoth, right? And then, you know, we see the we see the the actual CGI and it was goosebumps. It was so wow. neat to see it. I think that then, yeah, initial scene is amazing. The initial scene was just like and um and then then the tiger, when the tiger jumps in, that was one of the funniest parts of filming. Like all of that was just the funniest. <laughs> part. They got this this one stunt guy and um they did an emotive performance to capture, you know, the the feelings of it. And so an emotive performance is basically you don't do any lines. You just yell out what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And so the guy who plays the tiger jumps up and he's like, I'm an effing tiger. <laughs> of course, and after a while, they I'm an ain't you, you know, and everyone's like, ah. They start doing it in Wenja. They're like, how do you say that in Wenja? I'm like, Wufu Palsi Contigri. Like, all right. Wufu Palsi Yeah, it was really funny. It's just... I mean, he was scary, too. He was really intimidating, just getting up. He'd jump up, and I think, I don't know, he must have shouted a hundred times that day, I'm a bleeping tiger! I'm going to bleep and eat you! Like, oh, my God. And it was really funny, but then it was also really terrifying. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, that was, it's magical. It's mm-hmm. really magical to see um, to see the scenes that you've worked so hard on, that that but that are they they like transform into this other dimension it's mm-hmm. like um through the looking glass i mean you're so suddenly these things that seem so real and yet completely different they get transformed into a cave somewhere mm-hmm. and it is this person you know it's completely the scene that you know but it's also just in a dreamlike state it's i don't know it was really really fascinating yeah very cool i mean and i yeah we'll come back to it a second i think this idea of I think Ubisoft's kind of commitment to to Wien Jet everything as well, but, but it's great to hear that the actors were like, "Yep, yeah, all in." How do I oh, say that thing I just said yeah. in Wien Jet? That's fantastic. Oh yeah, no, I mean, I still so one of my favorite people in the world is T C Carson. I love this man. Um, so the shaman. The shaman. Oh right. I love Teen Side. Yeah, no, T C T C is awesome, and um, he worked so hard. He would have his lines. He would memorize all of the lines, but he also wanted to have the lines in literal translations of English, mm-hmm. which doesn't make sense to anybody. I mean, this is like linguistics, like English, you know, hand with okay. mouth open for, you know, like completely uh-huh. 
gibberish unless you he learned it all he had it all typed up he memorized every single thing he wanted to know exactly so that he could push the words that he wanted Mm -hmm. and he would sit there i mean he was so worn out at the end of the day but he always did every single one of his scenes in the language he didn't even want to try doing it in english Hmm. he came in he did it in the language and um man he worked so hard like that was uh you know, it was, it was, it was really hard work on all, all of them, definitely. But he was committed, um, to, uh, to doing his scenes, like in the language from the, from the start, like he would go mm-hmm. in and be like, I got this, you know, wow. and it was, uh, I mean, but they were all were like that. I mean, that's kind of, you know, thinking about it. They were also like Deborah Wilson, the, uh, Batri, the Zila queen, which mm-hmm. you haven't seen yet. Yeah, you don't know yet. Yeah, but you can see <laughs> the trailers. Um, she's the blue painted woman. Um, right. And, uh, she started giving her dogs commands in, in Zila. She uh-huh. was like walking around the streets of LA, like yelling <laughs> in Zila. It was hilarious. She really got into it. They were all just super, I mean, everybody was into it. That's it was, great. It was really fun. Yeah, that's great. And like that comes back again to this idea, you know, of immersion. But we, we take a step back for just a second as well. And I, what I wanted to ask you guys about, so Proto-Indo-European, I see it gets shortened to P-I-E in Britain. <laughs> is that, do you call it pie? That's curious. You know, it used to, I, would, I was adamant, no pie, no pie. No, oh, really? Now I say <laughs> So I, I'm curious, uh, and I'm sure our viewers would love to hear more about Proto-Indo-European and how uh, Winja and Izila, am I pronouncing those correctly? So Winja and, well, if you want to say it in Izila, it's okay. Hisilach. Oh, Izilach, okay. Hisilach. Uh, I'm curious to know about Proto-Indo-European and how the two languages evolved from Proto-Indo-European or, you know, how you guys obviously crafted and evolved those ideas. Yeah. And then some of the sub-things that I'm personally interested in are these languages that are mutually intelligible and is that mm-hmm. something that's worth thinking about or not? How does Proto-Indo-European, what's the relationship to the languages, for example, the language we're speaking right now? Yeah. And is Proto, this is kind of an interesting, kind of a culturally loaded question, sub-question, is Proto-Indo-European more limited than modern languages in kind of the things that can express, the ideas it can convey? Those are some of the things I'd love to hear you guys talk more about. Uh, so let's start with the next to last question. So Which is the next to last question? The one about, about English. Yes. Ah, okay. Yes. Yes. So English is one of many languages spoken today, mm-hmm. and there have also been many languages spoken in the past that are related in that they all go back to the same language, right? So mm-hmm. if you look at the history of English, the history of Spanish, the history of German, French, Hindi, Russian, Farsi, there's just hundreds of languages where five to six to seven thousand years ago these languages would have been dialects of the same language right and what happened was as these guys migrated across europe and throughout eurasia they stopped talking to each other and when you stop talking to someone there's no reason for the languages to be the same anymore so these Mm -hmm. differences started to develop differences in sounds differences in words and things like that and we see new languages are created in that now, in terms of uh, how does Proto-Indo-European relate to Wenja and Azila, so Ubisoft asked us to create two languages for the game that were based off of Proto-Indo-European. Initially, we had pitched uh, Wenja to be just Proto-Indo-European. Mm-hmm. But when the development team had heard the language, they're like, that sounds really modern. And there's a good reason hmm. for that, because if you listen to Proto-Indo-European, it sounds a lot like Latin and Greek. Hmm. 
for obvious reasons because Latin and Greek are Indo-European languages, right? So they're like, okay, that's not going to work for Wenja because we don't want it to sound so progressive, right? Right. So what we decided to do was to use something called internal reconstruction, which is a, is a methodology used in historical linguistics to turn back the clock on a language. So we already had Proto-Indo-European. Let's see if we can create Proto-Proto-Indo-European. And the result was Wenja. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to Izila, that's actually Proto-Indo-European, more mm-hmm. or less. There's some simpler simplifications but more or less oh okay interesting yeah yeah and i mean and that's one of the things with um so proto-indo-european sounding modern um one of the things that you have to deal with with any kind of adaptation is of course the expectations of the audience Mm -hmm. and um you when you're talking about authenticity it has to also be an authenticity that feels authentic for Mm -hmm. the audience or else people won't buy it and so um it's funny because you know proto-indo-european this ancient ancient language uh would feel too modern for the time setting for a lot of a lot of people um even if you know we can think of proto-indo-european being even as far back as 7,000 years ago, maybe mm-hmm. not, but still, like, there, there's some people who can place it back then. Um, no, sorry, 7,000 BC, not 7,000 years ago. No, 7,000 years ago? Okay, sorry. So, yeah, um, so there, there were a couple things that we were working with. But then there was also, they did want to move the game to 10,000 mm-hmm. um, BC because... And that wasn't, they weren't sure originally when exactly the time frame yeah. would be. Mm-hmm. And so when they decide on that, well, we really, you know, we would have had to reconstruct things back further because Proto-European is not supposed to have been in that time period so well, much. Well, a lot and of so, it depends on your point of view. Right, right there's so, that too. So most okay. Indo-European linguists believe it was spoken uh, about, you know, five to 7,000 years ago mm-hmm. in between the Black and the Caspian Sea. Okay. So today it's uh, Ukraine. Um, but there's some scholars, most of them are not linguists, but some scholars, <laughs> archaeologists mainly, yeah, who that... actually have, have proposed that the Indo-Europeans originated out of Anatolia and the spread of Indo-European as a language family coincided with the spread of agriculture. Hmm. Now, today there's good archaeological evidence and, and most notably genetic evidence that suggests that's wrong, that if you actually look at the change in gene in the gene pool within Europe, it coincided with the introduction of the Indo-European languages, and that happened about four thousand years ago. Hmm. So, so yeah. it's pretty clear, I think, that that uh, it, it wasn't spoken in Anatolia, but um, at any rate, yeah, no, and so that's a, one of the things is is Ouija was supposed to be the proto-proto uh, Indo-European, and um, what he's talking about with internal reconstruction when when you're trying to figure out what's an earlier stage of the language for example um everybody talks about english being a germanic language and most people don't know what that means well Mm -hmm. that means that the the oldest parts of english these older roots mirror things or they are they come from things from an earlier stage of a germanic proto language and Mm -hmm. so for example how do you know when something's older well the things that we use every day usually don't change as quickly Things that we don't use every day, mm, I don't know. What's the plural of, um, oh, yeah, there's an example, um, syllabus. People mm-hmm. are like, is it syllabuses? Is it syllabi? <laughs> you know, professors who use syllabi 
all the time usually say that syllabante see right like that's that would be the correct it's news to me i just made a face people don't know that's what it should be but we use it all the time we have decided it's syllabi right um uh, based on whatever cactus cacti right That's in texas exactly. right right yeah so but then the things that we don't use all the time they're more subject to change like syllabus but the things that we do use all the time sing sang sung bring bring brung no but some people <laughs> will do that but brought um you know these kinds of things they go back if you look at compare in german so sing sang sung drink drank drunk zingen mm-hmm. sang gesungen trinken trank getrunken mm-hmm. bring brought and brachte, mm-hmm. there's the same, it's the same older pattern. Mm-hmm. And plurals like man, men, man, mena, mm-hmm. um, it's the same kind of thing that you see. And these are older forms. They're older ways of doing the plurals. Mm-hmm. They're older ways of doing verbs. This is the kind of pattern that you can use to say, well, let's imagine if all of the verbs did that, mm-hmm. then that would be our older stage. Mm-hmm. And um, let's imagine if all of the plurals did this kind of a thing. That would be our older stage. And so that's kind of how you how you do the internal reconstruction. Um, the point where you the the question what you want to say? Yeah, yeah. I just want to give an example of this from Wenja. Okay. Oh, right. So yeah. in English, if you look at all the question words in English, mm-hmm. aside from how, they all begin with a wh. Mm-hmm. So what, when. Mm-hmm. Who, who, right? So they all, they all begin with a WH. And that WH actually goes back to, in Proto-European, qua. Because if you look at the, the question words, for example, in Romance, many of them begin with a Q-U, which mm-hmm. in Latin would have been pronounced as a qua. So like quis is who, quid is what, mm-hmm. uh, quade means why, and things like mm-hmm. that, right? Quid pro quo. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so what we did was we said, okay, that QW means question, right? So what right. we did was we said, what if the syllable Q was just how you made a question? So mm-hmm. in Wenja to say, question. you speak Wenja, you say, Wenja Wadhata. If you say, do you speak Wenja? You say, Ku Wenja Wadhata. Hmm. No, you don't go up in inflection. The way that you mark the question is with the Ku, and that's been kind of extrapolated from the quiz and quid and the what hmm. and the when and things like that. Fascinating. Yeah. There's yeah. a yeah. There's a, a famous line from Sila, Kuchlawata, and it's like Tanhichlawata, Kutanhichlawata, yeah. Kuchlawata. Yeah. Right. It's like, do you hear the screams? Do you hear the? Uh-huh. And it's that that coo again. Is that? Huh. that. So yeah. Um. It's it's also optional in Ouija because um mm-hmm. some things are understood obviously as questions. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, whenever you want to ask a question, we put in the coo at mm-hmm. the beginning and um. Jaima, actually, she has this kind of, when she asks something or she says something with a sentence starter, either an ooh, which an ooh is the command, like, okay, it's kind of like putting an exclamation point at the beginning of the sentence, mm-hmm. you know, or putting a question mark at the beginning of the sentence, the ooh is the command and the ku is the question, mm-hmm. but she does it kind of like from her gut, it's like ooh, <laughs> ku, right? She has this kind of, um, and, just... Yeah, that was really important for us that we had a language that made sense as a language, as a natural human language, but also one that the, each actor could find their own voice within. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you listen to Jaima's pronunciations, for example, she calls um, she calls takar uh, mammoth feet, which within, say, my <laughs> speech, within my wenja, it'd be mamafpadi. Okay. And she says mamafpadi. 
<laughs> it doesn't matter no, though because there right. are no avals within Wenja, and she just we never told her to do that she never uh-huh. you know consciously thought of it but she gravitated towards that pronunciation and it works great yeah it's it's wonderful and I, each of the actors has their own their own special idiolect uh-huh. like it's it's fascinating so and it works really well but they all sound we got them together and trained them um, especially those who are the tribal members so that they definitely have a tribal distinction. So the mm-hmm. Udam speak the same language as the Winja. It's just like a different accent, different dialect kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so they, we would get them together and make sure that they mirrored. It's like, okay, now you say this line. Okay. Now you repeat it back. Let's figure out where we can sound the same. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I want, I want to get back to your other, your question, which is, is really a, um, it's specifically a very interesting question for the history of linguistics, this concept of a limited language or a mm-hmm. primitive language. This is a controversial topic within the history of linguistic anthropology. Uh, some people call it the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis um, based off of um, Whorf, especially his, his things that he had published. Um, Benjamin Worf, not not Worf on on Star Trek. Not Lieutenant Worf. Yeah, right. no, a different one. Um, <laughs> that's 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 Worf's first name, apparently, in Star Trek. Yes, Lieutenant. according to me. <laughs> uh, so no, okay. So this this idea of the Sapir Worf hypothesis or, or linguistic uh, determinism is some of its. There's a lot of myth. There are a lot of myths out there about language and culture and society. The famous one that Worf reported on was in the case of the Hopi, the Native American, Native American Indian. They had different ways of expressing time. And he wrote that that meant that they, because they didn't have different tenses, like a present, past, future tense, that they weren't able to conceive of the past and the future. Uh huh. However, it seems he just had a really bad translator. Um, And I use this actually example in my classes when I teach about this. In German, you don't use a future tense to indicate the future. Mm -hmm. You use a present tense of the verb. Um, You don't also don't do the present progressive like we we do. We say Mm -hmm. like, I'm I'm reading this right now, Mm -hmm. not I read. In German, you do kind of like, I read now, I read tomorrow, Mm. I read every day. There's no distinction in the verb itself. Chinese does that too. Yeah. Well, a lot of languages too, right? And it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean (laughs) that they they can't conceive (laughs) of a future, right? Right, right. It's not that, right? Um, And so there's this, that's kind of a, it's just a, it's a misnomer. Um, that has occurred, especially when Westerners have, um, well, Westerners, I mean, Hopi or West, huh? when, yeah. <laughs> um, when, when dominant cultures have encountered cultures that they already perceive to be more primitive, mm-hmm. they tend to label the language or interpret the language as more primitive, even when that language might be more rich in other ways. Right. So the basis that most people, most people say, yes, there is no such thing as a limited language. There's no such thing as a primitive language that all languages can express everything equally. Mm-hmm. However, there's also this other interesting thing um, within linguistic research that does show that our language and our culture are sometimes so intertwined that the language might actually change the way we see the world 
And if you don't have category categories for things, maybe that also means that you don't, it's not that you're not able to see these distinctions. It's just that they're not important to you. Mm -hmm. So for example, there's a famous experiment. I love this experiment so much. It's really fun. It's called the Russian blues experiment. And it basically uh, measured reaction times for um, Russian speakers and English speakers with those kinds of, I'm sure you see these tests where you're, it's a color swatch at the top of the screen. And then there's two different color swatch swatches on the bottom. And you have to say which one on the bottom matches the one on the top. And it mm -hmm. measures your reaction time. Well, Russian is interesting because it has two different versions of the word blue. They don't have a word blue. They hmm. have globoy and sini. Globoy is light blue. Sini is like dark jeans, like dark blue. Now, that doesn't mean that we perceive light blue and dark blue any differently in that Americans, um, I think they just English speakers and Russian speakers still said, okay, here's the distinction. They still rated the same distinction between light blue and dark blue. So we could see them. Mm -hmm. But when it came to reaction times, Russians were so much quicker with their reaction time. Well, by so much, you mean a nanosecond. No, no, they were, they were, they were, they were statistically, yes, yeah, small. They were, they were much faster, um, with the, um, the colors on the other sides of the, um, the spectrum. If the, um, then the English speakers, but the interesting part, the most interesting part was it was based on language because when they gave some kind of verbal interference to the Russians, like say one, two, three or four under your mm -hmm. breath it broke their advantage. <laughs> so there's something about they were thinking while they were looking at these squares, which one is Gilliboy, which one is Sini, that made them react quicker. They were interpreting the wor <laughs> world through their conceptions of the world. So how this relates to Ouija. Ouija does not have past, present, future tense, right? Mm -hmm. You have a perfective to indicate that something's completely done. Mm -hmm. Who? Um, so Huquan means completely dead. Like mm -hmm. it's been dead. It's been. Again, I'm thinking of Chinese, by the way, when you do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's, and, you know, we. The we, le form in China, Chinese. Le, okay. Yeah. 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 yeah completed. So Chu means go and Chu le means went. And the le means I, I completed the act of going. Or Chu guo, which is actually, so actually two different, two different things can mean completed. And they're, cool. they're, they're different things. Guo is more of a kind of a, some of this might get edited out. Uh, no, guo, 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 guo is more of a kind of a. I don't know how to say this. A linguist who's familiar with Mandarin would kill me for saying this, but it's it, it's more of a kind of a past tensey kind. Of, I think of guo as a Chinese speaker as past tense. I think of le as completed, and so and le serves the interesting function where you throw le in all the time. So lots of Chinese dialects have la just as a kind of a, a thing you throw in while you're talking, you know, like to, at the end of a sentence, yeah, yeah, like yeah. like an exclamation point kind of thing. Huh. And uh, le can kind of do both, uh, but le technically is like completed. So ni 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 means you know have you eaten yet? So eat ni tse eat bao full full of food le completed ma is the question fragment again like like ku yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, you're yeah, just cool. saying in 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 winja. So the le is the completed, and then guo would be like I crossed the road, you know, to guo things mm. like that, or I went to I went to class. Cool, that's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry. This made me think. No, 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 no. I mean, then that's exactly like I mean, exactly. It's not like that. The Chinese have you know no conception of right. um these different time periods, <laughs> right? There are different ways to express right. it, and so, but within Linja, um, 
uh, and I actually had a conversation going to Chinese. I had a conversation with a student when I was talking about linguistic determinism. She was talking about how animals, um, you just refer to them differently. You don't, they're always an it. Mm-hmm. You would never call a dog or a cat a she or a he. Mm-hmm. And she think she thought, and again, this is interpretation. It's just, a, you know, but she was, she was defending. She was like, well, you know, we don't, we don't put our animals up on pedestals like you Americans do. You know? <laughs> She's like, they are it's. They're just, you know, I'm not going right. to, I'm not going to do all this stuff. Like my, my animal is an animal. It's not a human, but this is the same thing with, with Winja. It's, it's, um, they are very presentist. Mm-hmm. Um, you live in, in a very scary world. Everything's out mm-hmm. to eat you. There's really, you don't need to talk about things that happened in the past unless they were really important. And mm-hmm. then you would quantify it. Like the, when the shaman starts, Palumansipa, like many mm-hmm. moons ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so then you would, you would talk about things in that sense, but you don't need to say, you don't always need to indicate that something's going to happen or something happened or whatever. It's just, you know, people are dying today. Right. They're dying every day. Yeah. And, you know, and developing on from that too, like, I really think it was a brave and exciting decision to make a Far Cry game set in like 10,000 BC, BCE, right? Like that's, that's like, wow, like that's not, it's not something I think you would have predicted ahead of them doing it or would have been commonly, I mean, some people would have loved a game. I think we all would have loved a game like that. But for the game to exist as this AAA title and everything is great. And it, it kind of set 12,000 years ago, you know, agriculture revolution is kind of around the corner. You know, you have this NPC who is kind of innovating, creating things. And you also have Tensai, who's like, you know, a shaman essentially, right? Mm. Or shamanistic at least. He's kind of a witch doctor type figure. That brings on to this idea, like we were just saying there, Brad, a minute ago, about language and 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 this idea of well, quote unquote being limited or not. How do we though? Do we how what do we know about how we developed words for abstract concepts? You know, like like love, hate, sadness, happiness. Because I feel when I teach in my own limited way, teaching East Asian history and stuff, I will talk a little bit about the writing system and things like that. And one of my points is one of the advantages of the writing system was an ability for someone like Confucius to talk about the concept of morality and happiness and have have the characters have the script to convey that to somebody else but but where do these things come from am, am i even is it a false distinction that i'm making between a word for tree and a word for love for example and is that how how how, how, how you know what i mean and, and yeah. how 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 uh, am i am i right to kind of link it to this setting do you know what i mean this kind of this 10,000 bc yeah concept? i mean as far as we know uh proto-indo-european uh had words for love and hate and and all the human emotions that we all have Right. Mm-hmm. They had ways to make abstract nouns, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's specific morphological suffixes, you know, that they added to make abstract nouns. Right. So, yeah, for all intents and purposes, it was a human language, just like what was spoken today or mm-hmm. what is spoken today. The only difference is there's not a word for microphone. Or right. Computer and things <laughs> like that. Right. right. But of course, exactly. there are terms that they had that we don't. Like, you know, when you look through these ancient Indo-European dictionaries, they, they will, you know, include words. You're like, what the heck is a thill? You know, and you right. have to go look up what a <laughs> thill is, you know. Right. But yeah, no, I mean, from what we can tell, it's exactly the same. Yeah. I yeah. have this with my uh, students, you know, being Irish teaching in America, it's like slang, you know. And like, I mean, I can curse in a classroom if I use an Irish curse word. Like, <laughs> um well, I feel I can. Maybe I shouldn't be. I mean, it's always not me cursing in English either, I guess. But um, little things like, funny little things where it won't have dawned on me that they won't have heard of the word. So one of my father and my favorite one is in certain parts of Ireland, there's two things. There's My grandfather used to love just, uh, dividing objects into yokes and gozintas. 
and a yoke is just like pass me that yoke give me that yoke it's like give me that thing give me that noun that's what a yoke is versus a gozinta is like you know um, a wrench would be a gozinta because it like has a function and does so something. a tool yeah like a tool basically so it goes into versus or even a component of something so we're working on the engine give me the gozinta give me that part of the carburetor versus give me that yoke so you it's know, like give me that thing you know? that non that important thing versus or yeah or like thing. functional thing versus just general thing and kind yeah. of and i mean it doesn't come up that often in history classes kind of thing but it's just a fun thing to talk to them about because you just mentioned like what's a thill or something this comes up like even sources if you're getting your students look at primary sources and obviously you guys that have similar experiences even something maybe 30 40 years ago or just even just dialects of english that are out there right now where you need to you need to take them aside and go oh yeah this is what this means to return to primal so yeah, yeah of course uh, well I, I took us off primal so uh, I, I appreciate what... you <laughs> it's not my fault so one of the reactions that we saw, of course, we were following all this stuff very closely when it was announced, and mm-hmm. and you know, so the teaser trailer came out, and they had words in Wenja, but none of it was translated, and some of the, <laughs> right? you know, people are like, "What was that? <laughs> was it language? No, it can't be language. People didn't speak back then." Yeah. <laughs> and there was this misconception that we saw um, more frequently than we would have you know, wanted where people like people did not have language back then. Right. And one of the great things about the game is this, this is a really a, a great way to educate uh, the public, right? And mm-hmm. millions of people have played this game, which is amazing for mm-hmm. us, right? Played the game, have heard our languages, have probably looked into Proto-Indo-European, realized that, you know, half of the world's people speak an Indo-European language and speak a language that are related to each other. So anyway, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's great. And I mean, to really, there's this, there was this objective on the development side, obviously why you guys were brought in to make the game more immersive, right? Yeah. And I mean, I certainly think that works and obviously you guys do, right? You're pretty invested in it. But it's such a it's such a departure from the, you know, the ooga booga type speak, right? That like, I know that it's been a while since like Caven represented quite that simply, but I don't know. No, well, I guess a, it isn't. Yeah, there was a FedEx commercial. So that's just true. a FedEx commercial during the Super Bowl where they like have ooga booga language, yeah, but they like do and weird, dinosaurs. They do like weird oh, yeah. screams <laughs> and, and just all sorts of stuff. No, I think ooga booga is the norm. I think really mm-hmm. primal is the first mainstream representation of caveman mm-hmm. culture where they portray these these cavemen as people, mm-hmm. right? as human beings. Do you feel working on the game? influences your academic work obviously your academic work influences your work on the game it directly informs it but and brennan we've already talked about this just now a few minutes ago but what are these connections as academics right especially now reaching you know our audiences mostly are not academics for the most part how do we see though that kind of those connections like i mean i i i'm obviously a very positive view of it i get the impression you guys have positive views of it too yeah. But how is this something that we can use to engage people, and and how does our work change when it comes when it comes to engaging with people? How do do we change the way we present our work? I mean, do we emphasize certain things? These are all the kind of things I'm interested. I, in. You know, I think uh, I know that my field, my discipline, Indo-European linguistics, Indo-European studies in general, has a problem. Has a problem in that they do not engage the public. Mm-hmm. You know, every single person that I tell, you know, hey, I'm a professor of linguistics, so what do you do? And I tell them about what I study. They're like, really? English <laughs> and Spanish were the same language at one point in time? That's amazing. Yeah. Why don't you know that? Right. And the reason is that my fail, my field has failed to educate the public on that, right? 
I think I think academics in general has failed to engage the public on these agree. issues. And for me, it is absolutely absolutely becoming my mission to be the guy who educates the public on these things. And Primal, you can't get a much better platform than Primal for mm-hmm. for you know having this finished product that people can listen to and enjoy. And then you start talking to them about, wait a minute, why is the word for water in Wenja Wadad? Are you just being lazy? No, actually the word for water in, in Proto-European is water. You know, right. and it sounds almost identical to water in Savannah, Georgia, right? Uh-huh. And there's a reason for that. It's because, you know, we inherited the word from water from Proto-European. So for me, it's very exciting. I hope this project leads to other projects. Um, we certainly have plans uh, for the near future to develop some sort of um, online way for people to learn about Proto-European as a language, to learn about its culture, and uh, hopefully mm-hmm. get a lot of people who are involved in Primal, the actors in particular, um, mm-hmm. you know, taking part in this project so we can educate. So, yeah, it's, it's very important. And that this has honestly been... Uh, my mission over the last 10 years has been about making Proto-Indo-European into something real. Now, mm-hmm. I just published a monograph on the Indo-European syllable, and if you look at the whole thing, it's really just me asking the question, okay, we reconstruct this this language, Proto-Indo-European. We think it sounds like this. Is this a reasonable assumption? Do human mm-hmm. languages sound like that? And that's like <laughs> the basic question. And, and the answers that I arrive at always ask, you know, it always is asking that question. It's interesting because before even this project happened, Andrew did something, in my opinion, revolutionary for the field. He taught an Indo-European class for students with no background in Greek, Latin, or Hittite. Hmm. And he taught it as if it were this synchronic language that we just, you know, we found at some point, here it is. And so he had the students read the fables and then he gave them a list of words and had them all write up a fable using those words. And then whoever had the best fable, then the entire tra- class translated that into Proto-Indo-European. Hmm. And it was really cool. I mean, it was the most, I think, the most innovative way anybody's ever taught Indo-European. I thought that was really cool. And he's going to be teaching it again soon. And, you know, that's that's really what needs to happen with the field because you can't go into this expecting that students will have had all of these languages. I mean, neither one of us really knew about Indo-European studies until we were, you know, juniors or seniors in, in college and we started taking graduate classes. We're like, oh, this is so cool. For me, for my research, what I think is really interesting for the project has been, one, just this 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 feeling of yeah you can teach you can teach any language if you focus on the most important things that you want like if you want your students to be able to speak it if you want to increase their motivation their ability i mean there's different ways that you can teach a language but you can get you can get people speaking you know an ancient proto language if you want to and that was really an interesting experiment but also i've always been interested in in representations, in kind of the representations of truths in art, you know, things that commonly held beliefs that we have as societies that then 
kind of come out in art and that we only realize when they're not our truths Mm -hmm. when we they 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 stand out to us only when we don't believe them and we go wait why is that and so i i find this this whole thing very interesting specifically for the concept of authenticity and you know there's certain things about the game that had to be included for this modern audience so this question of what is primal was asked every day like okay this person's going to do this activity what would be the primal way of doing this right and oftentimes it was a reaction against what is modern mm-hmm. right so you you can't you can't point your finger like this with your index finger pointed out like a, right. like an english speaker you have to point it with your you know all four fingers pointing in that direction right? <laughs> and silly things like that but when you play the game, it actually makes the culture feel a lot more real. Right. But it's interesting in that it is a reaction against our culture, right? right. That this thing that is not our culture is a primal culture. And uh, I mean, yeah, for me, like maybe someday scholars will look at Far Cry Primal the way we look at Tacitus's uh, Germania. You know, like his version of the of the Germani was specifically in reaction to Roman society. Like the way he described them was really just, you know, an, an ideal, an ideal, like a, as you know, like the noble savage. It was this idea that, oh, well, these people are perfect, right? They haven't been mm-hmm. corrupted by society. I mean, it's, it's a, and so he, he would describe them in certain ways as completely the opposite of the society that he was in. And, you know, are we going to look at, at the Ouija someday as like the Gamani, they're this, this, you know, they're the exact opposite of us, except for these good, very important things that we, <laughs> we think are very important. Like they're an idealized, I mean, really the Ouija are an idealized version of ourselves. You know, they're, they're not the, the evil cannibals. Um, they're not power hungry. They're, they're just trying to survive. They're trying to survive. Mm-hmm. They're good at making friends, but they're also warriors. They're brave. Um, they have strong female figures. You know, they seem to be without gender bias. They're not racist. They're not sexist. They're not. I mean, like they're like these these idealized peoples who can live off the land and work well together and can ride saber-toothed tigers, you know? (laughs) Um, Only one of them can. Right. But it's it's still like, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting idea of what are our values as a society that these are the, our ideal people. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that that's not what it was like. Right. Well, right. And one one criticism I, we actually got this morning from uh, one of our loyal Twitter followers who, who uh, follows us on on Twitter. But, uh, but he he was talking about how one of the characters you'll you'll find him. His name is Erky. Uh-huh. Now in Wenja it should be Urki, but his name's Erky. And he is I don't know if you've seen this character Herc. He's a reoccurring uh-huh. character within the Far Cry series. He speaks Wenja with an southern american accent right? so <laughs> instead of saying right right instead of saying and so we made it we tried very hard to make it so that he was still herc right but he was speaking wenja but with a dialect sorry i'm just i'm saying his line shall we walk that yeah 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 uh, Buddha quality oh, means uh, smart man. So uh-huh. Buddha is actually the word Buddha. Uh-huh. Uh, so the Buddha is the awakened one, the smart one. And Kuala is the word for dude. But um, at any rate, uh, what were we saying? 
the, the guy was pretty, yeah, he was yeah, pretty excited. But, but he was like, like, you know, he's like, I, you know, I, I can't believe that he's got an American accent. Mm-hmm. And how do you know there was an American accent? How do you know that this wasn't it one of the possible completely... dialects that, you know, right. like, we don't know. Right. right. I mean, yeah. That's the thing when when you don't have a language written down or recorded, it could be anything you want, right? When I was an undergrad, um, I took Latin in first year. Sure. And when I found out it was Wenny Weedy Weeky, I was like, "What? Yeah, you know, yeah. I've been had. It's like right, the, yeah. it's a Can classic you example, Caesar you know." Caesar saying uh, Wenny Weedy Weeky it just doesn't sound as powerful as <laughs> right. Weedy Weeky. Yeah, exactly. But that's what he said. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, and then again, yeah, it's our perceptions of what is authentic, you know. It's definitely very interesting. Well, thanks so much, guys. It was a fantastic conversation. Really yeah, grateful you. for you coming along. It was our pleasure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was fun. Thanks. That wraps things up for this episode of the History Respawn podcast. Please feel free to visit us at historyrespawn.com or at youtube.com forward slash historyrespawned. We are also available on Twitter at at historyrespawn. Let me also take this chance to invite you to rate us on iTunes, please, and tell people if you like the show. We'd really like the word to get out there and for more people to hear about us and to visit us at our websites and learn more about history and video games. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time.